Evangelists podcast, here to spread the good news that books and reading will save us all. Lissa and Marianne will be talking about what's up in their reading and writing lives, reviewing recent reads, urging each other on to writing triumph, and generally wallowing in the pleasure of hanging out with a friend who loves books. Join us, wallow with us. This is episode 17, in which we will be discussing A Movable Feast by Ernest Hemingway, which we both read, intending to hate read it. But before we discuss that, Lissa, I wanted to uh, discuss something nearly as dear to my heart as books, which is um, things to help me have a bookish life. So shopping. That sounds amazing. Tell me more. Well, one is about something I recently got, and the other is about something I'm thinking about, and I need your advice. And the first thing is, um, as you know planners are near and dear to my heart and I keep little lists and and organizational methods of things because it makes me feel like I'm going to get things done excellent you know and I love ticking off things that I have gotten done sometimes I'll do something and then add it to my to-do list so I can check it off one of those yeah because it's good so for next year which I firmly believe will happen I believe there will be a 2021 uh, despite all evidences to the contrary, I have purchased a Hobonichi Techo planner from Japan. <gasps> yes. Have you ever heard of these things? I have not. Okay. Tell me about it. This is a very tiny book about the size of my hand. Um, and it weirdly it reminds me of a Bible. It has this black cover with lettering on it. And the paper is like super thin, almost see-through. But the paper is supposed to be really great at not bleeding through with pens. Or, cool. Or, and you can watercolor on it and stuff like that. It has one page a day for the whole year. Wow. And it's, so this little tiny book, and it has a page for every day, so you can write down like your schedule or like things that made you happy or things you saw or that you want to remember or paste in, you know, tickets or fortune cookie fortunes or whatever is kind of ephemera. So... I have high hopes for it. And because I am also a cheapskate, I didn't want to buy, I did not want to spend, I wanted to buy, but I did not want to spend the money for an official cover for it. Because uh, no lie, the little tiny book itself is pretty spendy and the covers are another bajillion dollars. So yesterday I did math and I made a quilted cover for this book which fits it fairly beautifully. I might change my math a little bit if I make it another one. But the thing is, I decided not to put like a button closure or anything on it because I wanted the book to lie flat. But I need a kind of a, and I don't know what you call them. I want to call it a book thong. That sounds slightly naughty. Like just like a, a, it does. a thing that goes around it that holds it shut. So uh, like do you and your librarian-ishness have any advice on, to me on where I can get such a thing or how to make such a thing Mm. or do I just need to get a shoelace (laughs) I mean a shoelace is an option (laughs) or a hairband um I have been making a lot the only sewing I've been doing has been making masks with t-shirt ties which you've been making a lot of yeah and they're stretchy 
And I feel like you could do a thing with a t-shirt tie and a slip knot um, where the slip knot would make it adjustable to hold it shut and then you could slide it open again. Maybe. Maybe. That would be an easy experiment and not add too much like a button closure would. Yeah. Mm. So you think on that and get back to me. I'm going to think on it. Or if anyone out there has a brilliant idea on how to make a vaguely decorative but also extremely useful removable closure for this so that as it gets big and fat, I can keep it closed because they do grow in sizes. You put stuff in them. And also if I shove it in my bag, I won't get all crumpled around. Yeah, so that's my first thing that I need from the world. And the second thing is NaNoWriMo is coming, as you may have noticed. Very soon. And I've been thinking about how I'm going to spend so much time sitting here in my office. And my desk chair is a chair that I love very much, which I got for $5 at a garage sale. And it is a vintage wooden swivel chair, right? Which I'm crazy about. Beautiful. And I have a little cushion on it for my posterior but I have been straying in my thoughts and thinking about gaming chairs and do you think I should I'm sitting in a gaming chair right now (laughs) I know you are I know you are so do you think that I should a give up on my perfectly serviceable and aesthetically pleasing mostly pretty comfortable wooden chair and get a big gaming chair to put in here or should I stick with the chair what brung me as they say what if you just designed an experiment for November in which you try out a gaming chair and try to successfully have it stay yours all of November before one of your children steals it from you yes my children will steal it from me for sure and I keep thinking now that at uh, I have one child in college, but he's you know he's there, but almost all of his classes are virtual, and one child here doing virtual school all the time. And I keep thinking they would want more comfortable chairs to sit in, and I know that the college child would steal a chair and take it away f- from me uh, when he went back to college. So maybe, maybe secretly get a chair. <laughs> Yeah. And don't tell anyone in your family that oh, you have done this please. until after November. My office is seven by eight feet and it's an X closet and it, ha- but it has a door. And I picked it because I thought, oh, a tiny scrap of this house that could be mine. Yes. But let me tell you, this is like Grand Central in here. There's always somebody in this room. I have to kick them out on the regular. So anything I put in here is not going to stay a secret. Then maybe a nice chain that chains it to your desk. <laughs> like pins in offices. I like it. I only get to sit in this comfy gaming chair when my kids are not home. So I'm enjoying it right now. Yeah. But do you find it comfortable? Oh, I like it a lot. Yeah. I think it, it would be the conducive The one I got was from like Staples maybe. Yeah. Um, and they deliver and you have to assemble it. But it wasn't too hard. But it had like removable uh, back support and head mm. support and... It's all adjustable. Yeah, yeah, I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, give me food for thought. Well, now that we've discussed all of my um, consumerist um, desires, we should probably talk about this book about people who have no money and are happy and have nothing. 
and are starving okay. to death, but happy. Right? See what we learned from them. See what we learned from them. Uh, would you like me to read the description of a movable feast? Sure. All right. This is the description of a movable feast. Uh, we read the restored edition uh, by Ernest Hemingway. Hemingway's memories of his life as an unknown writer living in Paris in the 20s are deeply personal, warmly affectionate, and full of wit. Looking back not only at his own much younger self, but also at the other writers who shared Paris with him, James Joyce, Wyndham Lewis, Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald, he recalls the time when, poor, happy, and writing in cafes, he discovered his vocation. Written during the last years of Hemingway's life, his memoir is a lively and powerful reflection on his genius that scintillates with the romance of the city. This sounds exciting. It does sound exciting. Is mm-hmm. this what the book was like for you? Um, I, as is not a secret, have a lifelong dislike of Hemingway. But I felt like I needed to read this book for writing reasons of my own for a book I'll be writing in the future, which I needed to know more about Hemingway and um, Fitzgerald and Paris in the 20s. And at that time when those writers were uh, all blossoming together as writers. And I really, I was going to say I really enjoyed the parts about writing, but that isn't necessarily true. Um, It did not change my mind about Ernest Hemingway. I still dislike him intensely and think he was a total jerk to his first wife, if not all of them. I don't know about the rest. Um, And I think he was difficult, but I think he had more, I see more, more depth and I think I maybe have a better understanding of why he was the way he was, even though the way he was annoyed me on the regular. Um, How about you? Um, I was all in for hate reading and then I figured out I didn't really know how to do that because I didn't want to pick it up and use my like reading time to like hate something. So finally I figured out what I could do was just read it with permission to not like any of it and to not have to try to find any parts I liked. And that was very freeing and I enjoyed reading it that way because then when I hit parts where I was like, "Eh, dude, what's going on here? I could just say, oh, that's one of those parts I'm supposed to hate. (laughs) <laughs> and I felt really great about it. That's a completely um, legit way to do this. Yeah. Um, so it made it a lot easier for me to go in thinking I was maybe going to hate it. And then I could find sentences I liked or, yeah, yeah, some understanding of like, oh, well, even though he's writing this in such a a sort of lovely, readable, episodic way, like his life is really pretty terrible in this like interesting thing he's describing here is like starvation and well that was something I thought was really interesting about it. I don't know how much you know about Ernest Hemingway. You know much about Ernest Hemingway? I've read a lot of Ernest Hemingway, but apparently I don't but know like, a lot about but like Ernest biographically. Hemingway. Well what's interesting is, you know, he talks about how horribly poor they are and he's like skipping eating on sometimes to eke out things and he talks about the money that his writing is bringing in or not bringing in. But, in fact, the reason that Ernest and Hadley Hemingway were able to go to Paris to begin with so that he could write is because she had a little bit of money. Mm. So it wasn't like a lot. She's a little bit older than him. Uh, and she had inherited 
a scrap of money that allowed them to go to Paris and pay the rent and not starve to death. And he never mentions that in this whole book that Hadley's money is the money that's paying the bills. As, me as meager and horrible as their life is, they would not have had a life in Paris at all unless they were living off her money. He accidentally forgot to include that part. He did accidentally forget to include that over and over and over again. Yes, but it, it's, it was interesting to me because that is a, a true fact about them, but he never mentions it. But he talks about money that his stories make and how to eke it out and about hiding money from her that he makes betting on horses. Yes. Because he has this kind of um, nascent gambling addiction that he is able to put aside um, and recover from, which was good, and get back in the game of riding and paying attention to that. I bet, but he, yeah. So that, I thought that was typical of of Ernest, the Ernest Hemingway that I don't like is that your, your, your wife makes this possible for you. And all of her dialogue in the book is like, like a child almost, or a pet. Just, it's all just about how much she loves him and how he's right all the time. Uh, and I thought, you know, give the woman some props. She financed your dream and she stood by you and was loyal to you and put up with a lot of crap and miserable living conditions so that you could follow this dream. She's what you want in a partner if you have a big dream like he had of this willingness to support you. So yeah, there you go. I thought he, I thought it was not cool the way that Hadley's <laughs> character slash his first wife was portrayed. Um, like, I really liked the part in the book where he's talking about the end of his first marriage as not being part of this book. Right. And he right. used the phrase, he used the sentence, I wrote it and left it out. Um, it made me wonder how much of the rest of what he might have said about Hadley, his first wife, might have also been left out. And if that's not why her character was so childlike and yeah unadmirable it is it is interesting like you said we are reading the restored version of a movable feast which was the original version was published posthumously he was writing it um when he killed himself and wife number four edited it and there's some supposition that maybe she edited out some things that he had said nicely about hadley and that and i haven't read the original version because she just could not handle him talking so nicely about wife number one and his remorse and accepting of blame for the 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 uh, dissolution of their marriage and it falling apart but i i did like that about him and i grew to like him more and that he does kind of admit that you know he did things and in retrospect he recognizes what a good thing he had and what a uh, kind of a golden time in his life it was this few years that he had with Hadley in Paris and in Firenze and that he should have appreciated her more and acted differently than he did um, so I thought that was spoke of some some growth in his character between the time he's 25 and the time he's 60. Uh. I agree. I think that it, it showed 
It showed some of that growth in the distance and also the ways that the 1920s in Paris for these writers were were portrayed here. It, it held up to my ideas about Paris in the 20s pretty well. Yeah, I agree. It's They all seem to live on personal energy and expectation or hope. That's that's all anybody has going for them here. And yet they were really free in many ways in a in a way that I can't imagine my life ever being. So yeah. I don't know if I if I if I have harbor any jealousy toward that freedom or not. You have to give up a lot. Yeah, you do an awful lot to and like I said have this faith whether warranted or not that it will all work out and it will all be okay and that you it was interesting to see him you know writing in cafes or discussing his writing and talking about the effort that he puts in to find his voice or his style or what it is that he wants to say the true thing he keeps talking about the true thing that he wants to put on the page and what he's willing to give up to reach a version of that that he can live with or that he feels is is worth having. It was interesting to hear him talk about writing. Um, I didn't agree with everything he said and I wasn't inspired by all of it. (laughs) But there were bits where I was like, oh, yeah, this is. Um, I especially liked, I think the part that inspired me most that I want to try myself in my writing practice is writing until you are going to stop for the day and then try not to think about anything until the next time you come back to it. So you can fill your brain with all the other things in life that you might pour into your story. Yeah. And maybe the idea there is that subconsciously your brain is doing work on that, you know, while you're busy doing other things and having the rest of your life, but you're not sitting and, and mulling on this thing. You're out living the rest of it, and then you come back to it. And there it is for you. Um, Although I felt kind of sad for him, knowing that he's writing this as an old man whose powers are leaving him and he knows it, and he's looking back at this time when when he could do it. He said, you know, back then it was easy. You know, back then it, it always came. He always could sit down and pick it up and write again. And I think... The feeling that I got is that at the end of his life, that wasn't true for him anymore. It was harder to find the the state that he needed to be in in order to write the way that he wanted to write. Uh, yeah, so there was that, a fair bit of that. sadness. Yeah. But I did enjoy the jazz age um, shenanigans of the various writers, although many of them come to bad ends as well. <laughs> There's a lot of death in this book. There's a lot of death in this book. Yeah. Sorry about that, Lisa. Who knew? It was mostly off screen. I mean, that part was... Yeah? That part yeah. was all right, but... Yeah. yeah, a lot of talking and passing, like, oh, well, but they're dead now, and... Yep. And you have... We have people who drink themselves to death, and people who... Um, take drugs until they forget to eat and starve to death and um people with tuberculosis who die and um like a lot of them did not make it out of the 1920s you know Uh, even Fitzgerald 
really doesn't. I mean, physically he did, but you get the idea that, that the, the brilliance that was Fitzgerald had really dimmed because the toll of life was so great that, yeah. Yeah, and even when Hemingway is talking about talking about deaths, like he describes a man who is killed in an avalanche pretty graphically yep. um, as an as an example um, of something he didn't write about, I think, or maybe he was just talking about avalanches for that year of how, how many people they saw die. Yeah. Um, but then he talked about leaving out a man's death from the end of a story that he wrote. Um, and I, I wrote down this quote because it was so interesting to me. My new theory that you could omit anything if you knew that you omitted it and the omitted part would strengthen the story and make people feel something more than they understood. Yes. And that's... Um, I liked that. I liked that too. And I'm a big believer in white space and writing, leaving out stuff, leaving it for the reader to fill in. And um, it's something that I get pushback on from time to time. People are like, well, I want to know this. I'm like, well, I want to know that. I'm like, well, what do you think? happened why don't you tell me so i like that he's willing to leave that out and he does that here pretty effectively too um particularly there's a story where he's growing his hair longer to match hadley's hair yes and he says like she she leaned in and told me a secret thing and then he goes on and he does this too when hadley um loses or arrives without his she she's bringing him every story he's written and all the carbon copies and they disappear off the train and yeah. he's he goes back to paris to look and see really is this true does she even have the carbon copies and he and then he he discusses like he did a terrible thing that night or something but he never tells you what it is so you don't know does he just drink himself to sleep does he tear the apartment apart does he who knows what he does? Right. It's um, so much more powerful to not know. To not know what it is. What is his reaction alone in his apartment, discovering that everything he's written is gone. It's more powerful not to tell us what your big reaction was, just to say it was bad. You know, because that leaves it in my head to ask myself, well, what, what do I think I would do if everything disappeared? Um and this person that you love feels guilt for it. Right. And you need that relationship to go on. And also then as the reader of that story with that white space he's created, you can't judge him because you don't know what he did. Yep. You can only fill in what he might have done. And then you're kind of judging yourself about what you <laughs> fill in. Yes. It's very tricky. And, and you give him, and I give him hero points on that too. Although, like I said, personally, I still dislike him. But I give him hero points on that for A, going back to Hadley and saying... Uh, it's cool, you know. And also, meh, those were all crap stories anyway. I've learned so much since I wrote those. Now I'll write better ones. Um, which is is grand of him, considering that they like there were like two stories that that survived, and one of them is one of the great stories he right. ever wrote. Um, so clearly, he wasn't writing crap at the time. He's writing good things. Um, yeah, so there there were things to learn from the book, and there are parts of it that I like, and things that I like more about Hemingway than I previously did, and my original opinion of him still holds true. Uh, but the part that I personally really enjoyed in the book the most was how gossipy it is. It's so gossipy. <laughs> it's, I mean, 
he like spills the tea on everybody that he met. And yeah, he scene is a man by scene. Of, yeah, and he's a man of strong opinions about everybody. I don't think he met anybody he had a casual feelings about. Um, and of course, I was terribly interested in his interactions with Scott Fitzgerald. Because I am really interested in Scott Fitzgerald. Uh, what do you think about all that, Lisa? Um... I was, I did not go look up like everybody's relative ages and all the publication dates of things because I was trying to sort of stay in the moment of reading the book and reading his perspective on it. Um, but the timeline was very interesting to me. Like here's this young Hemingway who's not as established or famous as Fitzgerald maybe uh-huh. at the time, but he's sort of taking care of Fitzgerald and mentoring him. But then Fitzgerald is the more established writer and like Hemingway's almost dismissive, um, like, well, I finally read his book, The Great Gatsby, and man, I hope he can sober up to write more because he's really good. Yeah. He, but then the, it just goes on. Yeah. Gatsby knocks his, he knocks his socks off. He can't yeah. believe how astoundingly good it is. And he will then just say just very dismissive things about Fitzgerald as well. I think they're about the same age. Fitzgerald has this huge hit um, at a very young age uh, with, oh gosh, my brain is farting here. Sorry. Um, the Other Side of Paradise. Oh, uh-huh. Which he like writes in a, like 12 weeks or something. And it's a huge, massive hit and makes him a ton of money. So Zelda agrees to marry him. And that, so that he had immediate, massive success that he's then trying to match or follow up. Whereas Hemingway has had this long drudge path towards success, working with uh, small newspapers and then bigger newspapers and going to Paris to find himself. So he's not famous yet, but I think they're approximately the same age. Maybe Fitzgerald is a little older, but not much. But they're just, so they're approximately the same age, but at different points in their arc of Yeah, and different success. arcs. And very different writers from each other, yes. Um, and I was fascinated by the stories that he has with Fitzgerald, how how um, off-the-chain bonkers Fitzgerald comes off in here. And just almost manic, in a way. And drunk always, just drinks like a fish all the time. And he knows he shouldn't. And he, according to Hemingway, Fitzgerald recognizes that he needs to stop drinking if he wants to be continue to be a great writer or it's going to ruin him and of course it does drinks himself right. to death uh but they have this whole like wild road trip together right at the beginning and but you know that the part that i was most dazzled by in this book and this is a family podcast it is is when Fitzgerald invites hemingway to lunch at is it the ritz right it's a fancy place. It's, I think it's the Ritz, Paris. And um, says to him that he's just not sure that he can satisfy Zelda in a conjugal way. And he's worried that he might be uh, physically lacking. So they go into the bathroom and drop trowel. And um, Hemingway assures Fitzgerald that he's fine. And then they go to the museum to look at statues. 
I mean, that was my favorite part, right? It is amazing. And what dazzled me is that Hemingway gives you physical descriptions of people, but the way he describes Fitzgerald isn't like the way he describes anybody else. He talks over and over and over again about how physically attractive Scott Fitzgerald is. His beautiful hair, his gorgeous mouth, his big eyes... Everything about him is just so amazingly physically attractive. And that's followed immediately by, and then we went to the bathroom and I took a look at his junk. To reassure and then him. We went, yeah, to reassure him. And then we went to the museum and looked at naked man statues together to compare and contrast. And it's such an amazing story that it made me wonder whether part of Hemingway's kind of super masculine Ra ra ra! I box, I ski, I hike the mountains. Posturing isn't some worry within himself that he finds men attractive, or at least Fitzgerald, very attractive. What do you think about that theory there? I have no idea, but you now I have it? an alternate theory that has emerged. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here's my new alternate theory. This is like Hemingway's best mentoring. He wants to mentor other writers. Like he wants to talk to other writers and learn from them. And and he wants them to learn from him because he is a good writer. But he doesn't want people to compliment him. And like this part where he's mentoring Fitzgerald about how to use a pillow in the bedroom is like his best mentoring in this whole book. And I don't know really what to make of that. Exactly. That's interesting theory. Another biographical tidbit about Hemingway is that when he was a very small child, his mother dressed him as a girl and referred to him as a girl and called him Ernestina. And so he had this kind of shifting identity, sexual identity as a child of whether he was a boy or whether he was a girl. Um, I guess his mother, I don't know, didn't want a boy or whatever. But I wonder whether this is kind of like his embracing of this super masculine gender performance is not related to worries that he has or questions that he has within himself about this. And it could be that that, uh, you know, mentoring in Fitzgerald on how to be great in the sack is um, part of that reassurance, maybe. Yeah, yeah. He mentors that boxer, too. Yes, he does. He does. He tries to. And then the boxing owner, like, sends him away because he's doing a good job and he's not supposed to. Yeah, and he's trying to teach, who is it, Ezra Pound how to box or somebody else? And he tries to teach Ezra Pound how to box. I mean, he's like the man's man. He is the man's man. Help all the other men be manly. Yeah. But he does it in, like, kind of a motherly way. I don't know if that's the right thing. Yeah. But encouraging and supportive and. Yeah. Okay. I don't it's, know what it is. It's fascinating. Means, it's, it's, it's fascinating. fascinating. <laughs> and of all the stories that you could tell when you're 60 about what was going on with other famous people that you knew in your 20s, it's an interesting set of stories to pick why you would pick that story to tell. And he is clearly a very careful and thoughtful writer. And you know that every word that's on that page, he has labored over it to make it just the way he wants it to be. And it just leaves you. Again, with a lot of white space and a lot of questions like, what is going on in this story and why, other than that it's deeply funny, would you choose 
Do you are you doing it to disparage Fitzgerald? I think he was doing it to disparage Zelda. And he hates that's Zelda. a story about he a man coming Zelda. to him because his wife said, "You don't compare. You'll never please women." Yes, yes, and he and Hemingway hates Zelda, and he blames Zelda for Fitzgerald's fall. You know? Yeah, I think that but, that story is really a. About Zelda. Zelda. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that, that he just cannot stand Zelda. And he blames her for holding Fitzgerald back on purpose. He, she wants Fitzgerald to fail, you know. Uh, she's jealous of Fitzgerald's talent, blah, blah, blah. Which could be Hemingway's view of, of powerful, demanding women, too, Um you know. Although I wrote my, um, I don't know which one, maybe junior year term paper on Fitzgerald. On okay. No, just on, well, on F. Scott Fitzgerald. And and I feel like Zelda comes across in non-Hemingway literature as pretty influential in a destructive way. Yeah, yeah. It was it was a mutually assured destruction kind of relationship, I think. Um, and, of course, Zelda is diagnosed with, was it schizophrenia, I think, and spends most or all the rest of her life in um, institutions being treated for it. And Hemingway or Fitzgerald rather just does whatever he can to make enough money to keep her there, take care of her. I don't want to like not lock her up there, but like take care of her and make sure that her bills are paid and she has what she needs um, until he dies. So they're fascinating comets, you know, blazing through the sky and you know they're going to burn up pretty quickly um, and sad it's sad so, so sad like I said everybody comes to a bad end of this book everybody does yeah yeah Whew. so did you since I since I um, I suggested we read this did you find it worthwhile to you to read I really did oh good I was worried because it's like, I was worried that like, you're going to, like, it's going to be painful for you to read this or a total um, downer on your limited reading time that you have anyway. No, it was, it was good for me to prioritize because I read the library copy of like a print book and it's an entirely different experience that I don't really prioritize lately. So it was really lovely to devote time to reading. And I think this was a book that lent itself very well to reading a print copy. Yeah. And it's in these little short chapters. And the chapters are very different from each other because it's a string of stories about you never know who's going to show up next um, and how it's going to be. And it has a very fluid timeline, you know, in terms of like, He'll discuss an event or a person, and then later he'll discuss an event, that same event or person or similar events, but they're they're mixed up timeline-wise in terms of yeah. what happened next. Or So it's more like a, a whirlpool than a river. Oh. Yes. Yes. Which was good. I think all of this was really good for me to read right before NaNo. So has it had any influence on your NaNo novel planning? Um, I think so. Tell me more. <laughs> well, most of my nano novel planning has been a combination of InstaRimo, 
where I mostly avoid actually committing to anything about my novel <laughs> and merely reflect on the writing process. Um, and a little bit of planning that I did in September um, when I committed to like a title so that you could make my cool book cover, mm-hmm. which thank you. I love. I had and, so much fun making it. I love making book covers for people. And the colors are so good on it. Um, and then yesterday, my darling child said, Mom, you're going to be my accountability partner. We're going to plan our novels. I'm setting a timer. <laughs> I even know I even know which of your children this was without you saying. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I have, we reset the timer three times. So I have spent 30 minutes filling out two plot outlines. Um, one all the way through and then another one immediately all the way through. Um, of like what those different plot points could mean in the story I'm imagining. Um, what what uh, outline <laughs> sheet are you using? I need such a wonder. Uh, I used the um, plot dot one from NanoPrep 101. Okay. I have and that then, book. Yeah, and then I used, I actually don't know what this is. I think the other one from one of those NanoPrep 101 sites, the one that starts Ordinary World. Okay. Um, but I basically tried to fill in, if I've got this person who I think is a librarian-ish, on a spaceship-ish, on a journey-ish, <laughs> um, <laughs> how a plot could stretch across an entire plot outline. Um, and what possible subplots might work their way in and where she might have big questions. Um, you know, it's a little sketchy. Well, I think you're further along than I am. So that's good. Uh, this reading A Moonfable Feast, like I said, I was reading it because I wanted to know more about Hemingway and about Fitzgerald and about these group of writers in 1920s Paris for a completely different project. Yeah. But it, it influenced me so heavily that it, I almost ended up writing a nano novel inspired by um, a movable feast, particularly this question of the loss of Hemingway short stories. And I was like, okay, so the, the suitcase is stolen off the train or whatever. If you're the thief and you steal that and you open it up and it's just full of pieces of paper instead of, you know, pearls, what happens then? So whatever happened to all of these lost Ernest Hemingway stories? Uh, And so I had this uh, hashtag brilliant idea trademark of this, (laughs) this, uh, this novel about that follows Hemingway's lost stories through time and through the hands of all the people that they come into being possessed by. Um, over time between, you know, when they are lost in the 20s through maybe the 1980s and stretching across, you know, time and characters and um, historical touch points. And it sounded like such a great and grand novel to write to me. But it was most definitely a literary fiction novel. And mm-hmm. I, I, I came to you and I said, now, now, um, counsel me or 
what is, what is, what are we, what are you? Coach, I coach, coach, you, I coach practiced me. coaching you. Co- you practiced coaching me since you've been learning coaching. So you practiced coaching me. Like, why would I want to write this? And I came to understand more what I would write. But what I came away with in the end, after much thought, after we finished was, this is a really great idea. It could be a totally awesome book, but it's not the book I want to write right now. Um, 2020 is a dumpster fire in a river. It's the worst. And what I, I was worried that this book that I was thinking of writing would be a sad book. Yeah. And I was like, I just don't want to spend 30 days writing a sad book where bad things happen to people. Because in literary fiction, bad things happen to people. So I put that aside. Maybe I'll write it next year. Maybe I'll go back and write this in the future and it will be my great magnum opus. Who knows? Um, but in the end, I was I put it aside and came home to my usual turf-ish, although I'm writing a historical fantasy this year. And, um, but it's more in my wheelhouse and um, should be a, a happier novel, although I'm sure big bad things will happen in it because it's a novel. But so reading this almost caused me to write a book about Hadley and Ernest Hemingway and what happens to all of his stories and like that. Um, yeah, so definitely did influence my nano novel and, and and you did a great job coaching me so I could see clearly what I was doing and, and see where I needed to go and be. Um, but I have made astoundingly little progress preparing for NaNoWriMo, Alyssa. It's, it's wow. I have one and a half characters. I have been reading a lot of books. I have this notebook I'm making, which is a compost pile of like things I'm thinking about. And this includes um, historical facts from books. It includes tweets that people have tweeted that reminded me of what I'm doing um, and like visuals. And I've started like a list of people or themes or stuff that might occur in this book, which is also a journey book, just like yours. So they will be like That's writing awesome. twins. Um, okay, so now I just thought of a new idea for my novel. Oh, no, no. No, no, but not a big change. <laughs> it's still a journey book, don't worry. I've been really struggling with the narrator and like how the narration would work for the kind of story I want to tell. Mm-hmm. And now I'm thinking maybe it will be like a movable feast. Yeah. It will be like somebody's memoir of this journey where they tell yeah. these stories. People I met or this thing that happened. Right. And then just like Hemingway, only nothing like Hemingway, <laughs> they will reveal lots of things about themselves in how they tell the story. Maybe. I like or, it. I mean, like, we're recording this on October 17th, and that's a lot of days before I would start writing this. But for now, that's this is the best I felt about, because then I would, I, the narrator, writing in the first person, right, as this person, whatever, uh, would know what happens. And a real boon on an anorama front, as far as I'm concerned, is that... Because that structure is um, disjointed but related. Yeah. If when you start a new chapter, you can write whatever you want, and it it fits into the larger 
narrative rather than having to say uh, what happens right now next linearly in this story. So you could just say, and then there was this one time when blah, 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 or so-and-so was a blah, 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 blah. Yeah. I think that would I'm be so great for you. I'm so excited about this. Yeah, story. that'd be great for you. And I think I'll have to plan more because my narrator, <laughs> even if she is not revealing this to the reader, she knows <laughs> everything that happened <laughs> because... She survived it, and she's writing this after, after, as a memoir, possibly from her notes or from yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think, do you write in first person very often? No. I almost always do, and I'm going to write in third this year. So we afterward, oh. we can discuss how that went. Yeah. So, but I, since I write in first person all the time, I'm just going to say right now, if you freak out or stumble, you just contact me, Lisa, and I will be your hand-holdy uh, encourager. I might need that. Yeah. Because I've got got a little, like, two weeks to start hearing this person's voice a little better. This is the part that worries me, is I don't have my narrator's, my main character's voice in my head. I don't hear him yet. And that worries me. So I need to spend some serious time getting to know this person and how he thinks and how it is with him so I can write him correctly. Because I yeah. don't, you know, revision is great, but you sure don't want to have to revise the, voice. Your, revise the voice of your main character. That's a big job. So, and you know, Neil Gaiman, my writing god, does say that he just sits and listens to his characters until he knows their voice well. And that's what he does for character development is talk to them and listen to them in his head until he can hear their voice so well that it comes out clear on the page. You, I'm trying to think of a witty thing to say about that, but. I, know, I was thinking like, I do this by sitting in a bathtub and in a dim rooms thinking about things, but you do not really enjoy taking baths. So how are you gonna find the time or, to- Or to, sitting. Or sitting. <laughs> That's what I was like, ooh, sitting still for anything <laughs> and just thinking. That is not and, my... And uh, it's fall, so your garden probably is taking less of your... Oh, my dad just came and bailed me out. My garden looks great. Excellent. So you don't need to spend hours in working dirt, in the dirt. You know. so, that you can, so what are you going to do? Um, probably let my accountability child set timers. <laughs> Man, I need to be adopted by your accountability <laughs> child, I'll tell you. Oh, I'm sure that she would call you and she needs to set me goals and yeah, you know, call me because she does it I... right there with you. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll have to Skype. <laughs> yeah, yeah, could be a thing. Could be. <sighs> Excellent. Well, we'll find out next time, I guess, how things are going. Yes, our listeners will just live in suspense <laughs> as to if we wrote what we wrote. <laughs> Well, I'm sure we report back. That's true. That's right. That's true. Yeah. Um, well, excellent. Well, I am really glad that I read A Movable Feast and that I didn't have to like it and that I could take some parts from it for my own novel, possibly. Yes. And I'm, I'm glad you read it with me and that I had permission to go ahead and dislike him on a personal basis and that I learned to respect him more, if not like him more, and... Uh, see him as a 
a more complex and complete person than I have seen him as before. So, so there. That all seems really good for nano prep. Yeah, it is. It is. And solid choice. And we can still hate him. Yeah. Also. Yeah. Yeah. I can still hate him. So I've got to hate somebody. And Ernest Hemingway doesn't mind if I hate him. So. It's so true. Yeah. Um, for next time, I assume we're going to tell people something about our NaNoWriMo projects. <laughs> yes. Yes, that we will have NaNoWriMo projects. And yes. that will be glorious. And that we will have persevered and shown grit. And we can bring all the lessons that we learned or total disasters that we faced and and fought against or through exactly so if you're listening and you're wondering when the next episode is or you wish it was sooner you should be writing your novel and we'll be back when we're done <laughs> right way to tell them Lisa. i am a municipal liaison that's you know <laughs> it's the thing yeah like you should be writing your novel now well right now you should be prepping yeah soon you should be writing writing Thank you for listening to the Book Evangelist podcast. Please remember to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Send us your comments and, of course, your book recommendations at thebookevangelists at gmail.com.